Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. On with the show. Hello, and welcome to this all-new episode of Close Talking. I am your co-host, Jack Rossiter Munley. And I am your other co-host, Connor McNamara Stratton. And today we have, as always, an excellent poem for your consideration and ours, um, and a poem that has a lot of stuff to kind of figure out and work through, which is always an exciting prospect. Um, The poem is Be Nobody's Darling by Alice Walker. Alice Walker is probably best known for being a Pulitzer Prize winner for, and generally for being a novelist, though she has written a fair amount of poetry and done other types of, of writing. She wrote The Color Purple is probably her biggest claim to fame, which she's most known for, uh, which won the Pulitzer Prize and also the National Book Award. Uh, and around that time, she was also, and has throughout her career, been uh a strong activist, particularly around uh, in feminism and particularly working on making feminism more intersectional, bringing more black women's voices to the forefront. Um, In fact, I believe it was the same year that she won the Pulitzer that she coined the term womanist and worked to bring attention to what she called the womanist movement, which was her kind of term of art or her phrase for a more inclusive version of feminism that would have more uh, black and brown voices empowered within it and that had a more sort of intersectional view before that had become a more uh, like mainstream concept. She was on the forefront of that. Um, She also got arrested for protesting the Iraq war outside the White House and has a whole bunch of other pretty strong activist cred. Yeah, this is, I'm excited to talk about her poetry because, um, you know, we've, we talked about some other writers who were primarily novelists, you know, uh, Toni Morrison um, and some others, but, you know, whereas like Toni Morrison has wrote a relatively small body of, of poet, of poems. Um, Alice Walker has numerous poetry collections from, the beginning of her career to you know where she is now so i think it's it's um yeah it'll be i'm looking forward to to talking about it yeah it's going to be good there is also unfortunately but crucially another aspect of of what alice walker has been about is uh she has faced numerous accusations of anti-semitism and has refused to disavow some pretty radical voices who she 
um, gives a platform to both through her website and in public appearances and interviews, she will mention the works of some pretty questionable individuals, which is unfortunate, um, but is something that I think we will be talking quite a bit about in this conversation, because I think it's something that uh, through this poem we'll find an avenue into as well. So without further ado, this is Be Nobody's Darling by Alice Walker. Be nobody's darling. Be an outcast. Take the contradictions of your life and wrap around you like a shawl to parry stones, to keep you warm. Watch the people succumb to madness with ample cheer. Let them look askance at you, and you, askance, reply. Be an outcast. Be pleased to walk alone, uncool, or line the crowded riverbeds with other impetuous fools. Make a merry gathering on the bank, where thousands perished, for brave, hurt words they said. But be nobody's darling. Be an outcast, qualified to live among your dead. I have to say, I, I love this poem. But the speaker persona is, it's a very, you know, like, sort of the the wise teacher poet like it has the kind of instructive nature of imperatives and be nobody's darling um rather than a kind of more like personal lyric poem um that is you know like has a, a sort of individual self i think what makes the poem you know the the basic core of the poem work as well as it does, at least from my perspective, is that the the kind of imperative and of course, as you know, we talk more about Walker, this has lots of complexity to it, but the imperative is something that's very unintuitive and kind of um, at points paradoxical. You know, you have be nobody's darling, be an outcast, you know, take the contradictions of your life and wrap around you like a shawl to parry stones to keep you warm. So the 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 contradictions, the very things that don't jive well together, that don't quite make sense or cohere, those are the things that the speaker is saying to to use as your your warmth and your protection. Um, but also, like I love the idea of be an outcast. The idea itself is interesting, but also, you know, an outcast in a more conventional sense is something that you become like because others have made you it. Like, I mean, maybe you're the one who's, you know, it's in the the parts of the word, like you're the one who's been cast out, like by society or by other people. Um, and of course, oftentimes people, outcasts do things that then cause that reaction to get them cast out. But like um, to, to sort of implore the, the you to like be an outcast, sort of seek that out. I feel like it, it's slightly more common to see something like do what you think is right, like be true to yourself, even if it means you'll stand out from the rest or you'll become a pariah or you'll become an outcast. It's like in, in that kind of like formulation being true to yourself or your principles or whatever is worth 
the pain or the consequence of being an outcast. But in this poem, it's like, so I think it's a much more like complicated and difficult sort of command. And I feel like that, because the risk of a sort of didactic sounding poem is that it's not, it just becomes a lesson sort of. And I think um, were it to be more straightforward of a command, the poem would have less kind of movement or sort of like happenings. Yeah, that was just kind of like the first thing that, that really struck me about this poem. That's interesting. It's sort of like, I mean, that first version of being an outcast that you're talking about where it's like, I stand with my principles, you know, um, that's sort of the uh, like Captain America position from Captain America Civil War, uh, where he's like, sometimes you have to know what's right. And you got to plant yourself like a tree, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> um, but I also think that this, the version of being an outcast that this poem is talking about is the Tony Stark position from Captain America Civil War, the Iron Man position. Because the main contention is that the Sokovia Accords have been put in place, which is like, is there going to be international regulation on the Avengers or not? And Captain America <laughs> is like, look. We may not be perfect, but the safest hands are still our own. And Tony Stark is willing to take what is within the group. I mean, it ends up dividing the Avengers pretty evenly in half so that you can have good, you know, movie conflict. But his position is a little bit more complex where he's like, he's a Give me a break. I'm doing what has to be done to stave off something worse. And like, he's willing to put himself in opposition to his friends in a way that is different from what Captain America is saying. Because Captain America is just saying like, we know it's right, we're going to do it. And Tony is like, we need to make some compromises. We need to put ourselves in conversation with something else. Like he is willing to put himself into an outcast position in a way that's not just, I'm sticking with my values and this is what I know is right. It's more that he is doing some of what this poem is talking about. He's trying <laughs> to figure things out. He's willing to take on the outcast role in this situation. So yeah, I guess like... Um... We, you mentioned this before we read the poem, but because I do want to be like precise, anti-Semitism is a very insidious like force in the world um, that has a many, you know, thousands of years of history. Um, and at the same time, there are some instances when it seems like that there's a conflation between opposing the actions of the state of Israel um, and, you know, being anti-Semitic or opposing, you know, Jewish people in and of themselves. Um, but Alice Walker has, um, I mean, it seems like it, the, her, it's gone a long way, but the, the incident that kind of like brought it to the fore was, uh, there was an interview in 2018, I think when Walker basically gave a shout out to this writer, 
this is David Ike or something. David and Ike, he, yeah. He's got this wild idea about I don't even really know, but like why well, like he aliens has... controlling the world, but then they're also mostly Jewish or something. And the way that she kind of parries away the way that you would perhaps parry stones with the shawl of your complex experiences. Um, the way that she kind of deflects questions about this is by bringing up her very long and unassailable history of advocating for Palestinian personhood and for the Palestinian people in the face of aggressive actions on the part of the state of Israel. Tell you, uh, there is in this slur that that is graining ground, unfortunately, in our country, something that is really very dangerous. It will soon be so that whatever you say against the behavior of the Israeli government will be termed anti-Semitic, and this would be very dangerous. Which is not in itself anti-Semitic. It's a political position that can be separate from anti-Semitism, but. She has repeatedly talked about the works of David Icke. And you've got this conspiracy guy on your, on your David website. David Icke. Yeah, yeah, David Icke. Um, who has conspiracy theories that bear some resemblance to the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and has pretty far out views on a lot of different stuff from the 9-11 terrorist attacks to, if you look on the internet, the present COVID-19 pandemic. He's got a lot of ideas about why wearing masks is the first step to like totalitarian government uh like thought control and all kinds of other stuff um and so the fact that she not only repeatedly mentions him but there's this interview from this spring with alice walker and the interviewer asks her about david ike and her history of anti-semitism she gives an answer about her long history of advocacy for the palestinian people he then asks again specifically about a video of David Icke on her website. I think a lot of the concern is just the presence of David Icke on your, on your website. I love David Icke. Take it or leave it. No, that, that's fine. That's fine. So the, some of the criticism... He doesn't mention, the video is David Icke with Alex Jones. And there's like an editorial comment from her on the video and she just says, why well, I like him and that's that. And that's the end of the conversation. And he moves on to another question about her writing life. And that's not good enough, <laughs> basically, because this guy has dangerous ideas that are harmful. And what I think is interesting about a poem like this, the first thing it made me think of was there's a passage in one of my favorite films and plays in Hair at the Wind where basically the school teacher who's been teaching evolution and is now on trial for doing so is conflicted about whether or not he actually wants to see the trial through because the whole town is kind of turned against him at this point. And his lawyer, who has come in from the city, is challenging him on like, why do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? I'm here to defend your right to think. I'm not here to like make you a, a martyr or to like do any of this stuff. I'm here because I believe you have the right to think freely and teach what we know is best science, all that kind of stuff. And he gives this really lovely little passage about how he knows what Bert Cates, the school teacher who's on trial for teaching evolution, is going through. And that it's the loneliest feeling in the world. It's like walking down an empty street listening to your own footsteps. 
But all you have to do is to knock on any door and say, if you let me in, I'll live the way you want me to live, and I'll think the way you want me to think, and all the blinds will go up and all the doors will open, and you'll never be lonely ever again. And it's this beautiful passage about, like, the value of sticking to your convictions. And it, it, I feel like that's sort of in conversation with a lot of this, particularly the lines, be pleased to walk alone, uncool, um, or line the crowded riverbeds with other impetuous fools. So like this idea of being comfortable with being outspoken, being committed to your ideals. And that's like the positive side of this poem. But I feel like this can turn into the the sort of rhetoric that is used around people who peddle in actually dangerous ideas that they try to use to insulate themselves which is like i'm a free thinker i'm out of the mainstream i'm an outcast david ike right now is refusing to leave the isle of white because he won't put on a face mask to travel to london he's like making himself an outcast in a way um because he feels like he has you know transcended to another level of understanding about the way the world operates and he's sharing his knowledge as best he can through these hidden internet channels. I feel like the complexity of thinking through what a poem like this is actually saying and not taking a blanket positive like go out, be you, in the face of adversity, like take on the world, be willing to, you know, stand out. I don't know, it's pushed my thinking on this subject because I feel like when I read a poem like this or when I first watched Inherit the Wind, I was like, yeah, go get him. Like, I was, you know, I was, what, like 15 or 16 when I first saw that movie. It was like, yeah, oh, go out there and stand up for yourself and stand up for your thing. But again, as we've seen, a lot of that rhetoric is what shows up, not in the extreme case for people like David Icke, but also around issues of free speech or cancel culture where it's like, well, you can't say anything anymore, and I'm just trying to, you know, ask questions. But there's more to what this poem is imploring you to do, I think, than that. It's the the tension between the outcast role and then also the notion of sort of community responsibility, I guess. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Uh, do you know when this poem was written by any chance? I believe it was first published in her book revolutionary petunias which came out in 1973 okay so she would have been in her late 20s it was a pretty early work for her okay yeah no i think that there's there's a lot there that it's that you bring up that's important to interrogate that it it um one of the interesting sort of hard things about uh language and rhetoric maybe more specifically is how how much it can be used in different ways potentially so i mean like you know in in some more like popular examples you have you know different presidential candidates over the years using songs by like you know neil young or whatever uh or different people Bruce Springsteen, perhaps. Um, I didn't say it. (laughs) For the record, all those listening, Jack was uh, giving me a look of of suggestion um, to which I responded. And 
you know, like the song sort of like, and you know, the artists have sort of famously been like, I don't want this candidate, you know, using my song. It's not what the song is, you know, intended to be about blah, blah, blah. And also like, I don't support this candidate like as an individual, et cetera. Um, but it's complicated because like, um, you know, and actually the, <laughs> to reference one of uh, Jack's uh, favorite people to impersonate, uh, there's a Netflix or a documentary that I watched on Netflix docu um, by Zizek, Slavo Zizek. And he is talking about ideology and stuff. And ideology. Yeah, <laughs> one more time. It's sort of precise ideological interpolation of sort of and so on. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the title of the documentary. A pervert in the Lacanian sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and there's a bit where he talks about this one classical um, song, like piece. What does this famous ode to joy stand for? It's usually perceived as a kind of a ode to humanity as such, to the brotherhood and freedom of all people. And what strikes the eye here is the universal adaptability of this well-known melody. Basically, it's been used as sort of the song of both, you know, far left regimes and also like fascist far right regimes. In Nazi Germany, it was widely used to celebrate great public events. In Soviet Union, Beethoven was lionized and the Ode to Joy was performed almost as a kind of a communist song. Um, and that it has this kind of um, ability to work across the political spectrum and is sort of uh, music has this kind of problem like can be formally ambiguous um or whatever and poetry and and language also you know has a a similar you know like you see uh another there at the end of the great gatsby it was like on a bridge like someone wrote the end of the great Gatsby on a bridge. And it was like, the words were supposed to be like this, um, sort of triumphant American construction of this bridge and like stuff. And it's like, that's literally the exact opposite of what the end of the great Gatsby is about, but also because... a book with quite a bit of anti-Semitism in it. Yes. Yes. That is quite true yeah Fitzgerald really had a lot of issues um but anyway which is just to say there's um and here's another example that actually shows the the a more positive potential of this kind of slipperiness is you know when we talked with Dr. Hollis Robbins about um, James Emanuel's uh, Freedom Rider Washout, and you know her book is kind of about how the, the tradition of of black poets writing sonnets, and 
one of the sort of tensions that, you know, is like this is on the one hand, a, a sonnet, a European form that has these connotations of, um, you know, the, the white canon and all this stuff. Um, and so, you know, certain like black poets through the years have been sheepish or adamant against writing sonnets for that reason. And yet at the same time, um, they've been repurposing and sort of claiming the sonnet for, um, you know, subversive ends and, you know, its own, you know, it's, it's the, to, to the, I think Robbins argues to the extent that now it doesn't even quite make sense perhaps to even say that it's a European sonnet or tradition if you've grown up and most of the people writing sonnets that you've sort of learned your craft from are black poets. You know, at that point, it might as well be in a, a black American formal tradition. Um, which is sort of a ramble, but I think it, it kind of, you know, this is one of those poems where, because it, it, it has these sort of powerful but general statements of like, be nobody's darling, be an outcast, like all this stuff. It's like, well, taken through one lens, you know, like maybe this, you know, taken in the perspective of like, imagine what it's like to try to make space for black women and women of color in the feminist movement of the seventies, which was primarily dominated by white women, you know, that's gonna not make you many people's darlings potentially, and you might be an outcast in your own right. And in, in that light, this sentiment is, you know, pretty radical or inspiring, you know, or, you know, like affirming, but then, seen through like you know walker's um long sort of history of anti-semitic thought and her and not just like as a not shying away from it and sort of doubling down in certain times then that kind of you know which i think is kind of what you were getting at is like well that kind of outcast, uh, you know, um, not great. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think particularly it is this sort of interesting continuum because when you look at the poem and it says, take the contradictions of your life and wrap around you like a shawl to parry stones for somebody who was so interested in making a more inclusive women's movement, the contradictions of her own life, not necessarily contradictions, but the pieces of herself that were put into opposition by the feminist movement, which was her blackness and her womanhood, would be something that is clearly you can address in this poem. Yeah, as you mentioned, it's particularly her sort of clear affinity for outspoken voices and refusal to disavow them and her comfort level with that. This is an interesting instance because the poem stands on its own, but it feels so informed by an understanding biographically of the poet because it feels like you can see so many different sides of who she is and what her 
personal views are on this through the poem. And what I find interesting is that exactly as you said, it's not particularly specific because she's not calling out in the way that a poem like Still I Rise does, which is also like a pretty general statement for the most part. And it is in the same kind of general vein of like positive messaging but Still I Rise has clues within it about who it's talking to about rising so that sure Serena Williams reads it in a commercial and it has other applications beyond like its original authorship. Cory Booker uses it at the Democratic National Convention. We like talked about some of its different uses when we talked about the poem, but it's still a poem that lives in a particular space and has ties to the groups that it's most directly addressing here there's a subject position being addressed to use the literary term and it's like addressing the position of outcast and talking about the positive aspects of that and there is not really attention within the poem towards what is making you an outcast it's just that you are you are either choosing to be in that position or being put in that position and this is kind of telling you to feel a sense of power righteousness there are hints at like the outcast tradition make a merry gathering on the bank where thousands perished for brave hurt words they said like putting you into a tradition of outcasts as the you being addressed in the poem be nobody's darling be an outcast qualified to live among your dead you know this sort of glorious tradition um and we may have talked about this poem during the Still I Rise episode as well, but it put me in mind of Invictus, one of the most reproduced and quoted and, I don't know, well-known poems. But that's another one that's like so general that it can be used in a lot of different contexts. And to your point about the Zizek documentary where he talks about the piece of music used by both far-left and far-right regimes... There's this really interesting sort of dual biography of George Orwell and Winston Churchill that came out a couple years ago by this guy Thomas Ricks. Um, it's a really interesting read because they are sort of two people who lived during the same time, were opposed to fascism, but were opposed to it from the left and the right. Um, who kind of, and it traces their biographies and it builds to this moment. But one thing that was really interesting that the book talked about is how people on both the left and the right use quotes from 1984 and use 1984 as a reference point for their own versions of like government overreach. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, and I will say that, that those end stanzas are the parts of the poem where the, the reason or the justification for being an outcast are kind of made most, or comes closest to making, you know, where, make a merry gathering, you know, on the bank where thousands perished for brave hurt words, they said, um, you know, that like, um, and, you know, it's interesting because it comes after or line the crowded riverbeds with other impetuous fools. And so there's kind of, you know, there's this river that's in the poem and on the bank of the river, in the beginning, you're hanging out with the impetuous fools. And then in the next stanza, 
this is where thousands uh, have perished for brave, hurt words that they said, you know, which, which I kind of, obviously there's, there's several ways to go with it, but, you know, maybe, maybe they are outcasts, but it could also be just activists or, um, you know, people standing up for justice in different ways and, you know, brave, hurt words. Like I, I find that to be a, a, a powerful phrase. Um, and there's a tradition and, of songs and poems, particularly an activist tradition of like calling on the power of those who have done activism before, Joe Hill, the American folk song. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me, says I, but Joe, you're This apparition of Joe Hill, the, the labor organizer and advocate, appears to this person in, in the night. Um, and there's wow. many other examples, but it, it, it strikes me as you're saying that, that 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 feels like it's sort of a part of that tradition. Yeah. Yeah. And like qualified to live among your dead is such an interesting, the word qualified is so, um, is such an interesting choice. I mean, it, it's, it's like very impersonal in a way, you know, um, and that you have to, you know, you have to qualify. <laughs> it's like a job interview. Like, show me yeah. your outcast resume. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> right. But it also, you know, it, I mean, your dead is, is can ob- also go many ways. One of it could be referring to like an activist tradition and legacy, as you were talking about. Um, it could also be like just your communities or you know like your black ancestors or not even necessarily familial but like the larger ancestor and forefathers of of particular communities and thinking about like living you know living among them and being you know qualified to do so or whatever um, which is interesting too, because it's, you're an outcast among the living, but you're not an outcast among your dead. If, if all goes well, like you, you are finding one thing that did strike me about this poem is that it's not strictly an isolate, like an isolation minded poem. Like it's not like go to your cave and like, you know, basically screw them all and be your hermit self like there's there's several times of you know you can be in the crowded riverbeds with the impetuous fools you know you can be you can have your merry gathering um and you can live among your dead and there's there's many there's ways in which the speaker is finding different communities uh even if they remain, you know, an outcast. I was thinking of Toni Morrison's novel Sula and how Sula is a, is a pariah, you know, of the community. And I know that people have probably written a lot about it, but, but also there's a movie called Pariah that came out 
somewhat recently that the protagonist is a black woman. And I, there's a, I, I just think that there's also a particular, um, in the literature, like experience of being outcast um, that's particular to black women in America um, that I'm sure Alice Walker would be channeling in some sense. Um, totally. And you can and, see that in, I mean, even the very recent and most, the popular example that pops to my mind is like the Williams sisters in the world of tennis for no other reason than being black and women, they were outcasts. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really right. Um, and I think, you know, there's like this double, the double, double standard or something of black women and, and powerful and confident black women. I like, you know, like if a white guy is an asshole and thinks he's hot shit and like is going around strutting his stuff, like people will be like, yeah, he's probably, a, he's a bit of a prick, but like, he's not going to be outcast by that. You know, I mean, just while we're on the tennis, you know, there's a lot of bad boys tennis uh, and a lot of throw, yelling at umps, throwing rackets. Um, McEnroe and Agassi, both of whom like became yeah. superstars because of their bad behavior. Right. Um, Really, this is the super lowbrow reference, but we've been watching a lot of Suits, which is very fun. Uh, one of the named partners at the law firm is a black woman, Jessica Pearson. And it's very notable throughout the whole show that the white guys who are on top just go around like babies, like throwing shit at the windows and punching each other. And they're just doing insane stuff. And in the seven seasons that we've watched of the nine total, we're really doing a number on suits. Jessica Pearson threw one thing at one wall and is the most composed person ever. And like still people think she's cold and all that stuff. This is a cursory treatment. Um, Sula is, is a much more profound example, I think, and it's a wonderful novel. I reread it a couple summers ago, and it's very devastating. Quite short, actually. I had forgotten how short it is. Yeah, it takes like an afternoon. Well, like you a, might end up taking more time because of, you know, wanting to really experience the language. And it's a not super easy story to read. But no. in terms of sitting down and reading it, you could do it in an afternoon. Yeah, it's like maybe 180 pages or something. But Sula is very, like, just committed to doing what she wants and, like, being herself. And it really costs her all of her relationships. And at the end, basically, yeah, at the end of Sula, there's this profound friendship now between Nell and Sula and they kind of part ways at the end and she lets out this cry and the last line of the book is it was a fine cry loud and long but it had no bottom and it had no top just circles and circles of sorrow 
which is incredible mm. even by itself it's just but i don't know i just keep i think about the kind of profound loneliness of that moment um and sorrow and and this this poem doesn't touch specifically on the loneliness aspect but i think that there's I don't know. I think it, that that's definitely a, a strong dimension to, to this part of the poem. Should we read it again? Yeah, let's read it again. This is Be Nobody's Darling by Alice Walker. Be nobody's darling. Be an outcast. Take the contradictions of your life and wrap around you like a shawl to parry stones to keep you warm. Watch the people succumb to madness with ample cheer. Let them look askance at you, and you, askance, reply. Be an outcast. Be pleased to walk alone, uncool. Or line the crowded riverbeds with other impetuous fools. Make a merry gathering on the bank, where thousands perished for brave hurt words they said. But be nobody's darling. Be an outcast, qualified to live among your dead. All right, Jack, here's the deal. Yeah. I know all you've been doing is reading Alice Walker and thinking about her complicated yet enduring legacy. You know me uh, so well. You know me so well. But I suspect you might have made some time in your other hours to do some other reading or some other consumption of certain media, uh, pieces of media. And um, just wondering what those are. Just curious what you've been up to. So I have been wildly vacillating between dense histories and feel-good television. So I've got two different things that have been taking up most of my non-Alice Walker time, uh, which are Anointed with Oil, How Christianity and Crude Made Modern America by Darren Dochuk, which is an incredibly good... Uh, it's about exactly what it says it is, and it's fascinating, and it's a very uh, useful look at some history that contextualizes our present political and cultural moment. Um, yeah, culture, wow. politics, business, it's all wrapped up in it. And then if you want a beautiful illustration of the cultural moment or the better parts of the cultural moment that we are currently living through, I cannot recommend highly enough the Netflix adaptation of The Babysitter's Club, books that I loved as a child, which have finally been put on i guess it's not film anymore because everything's digital but oh my god it is <laughs> so good i was like ready to love it i was ready for all my favorites to be up there but i cannot tell you how much i enjoyed it even more than i expected to i've seen it twice already definitely going to watch it a third time wow i love it i i watched the first episode of that and i'm very excited Episode four, there is a moment in episode four that even thinking Woo. about it now, get pretty emotional about. Jack. Mary, Marianne, 
the quiet. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm giving no spoilers. Marianne. It's not a fun little segment. If you're just going to spoil the plot (laughs) of the babysitters club, Marianne finds her voice and it's very touching. Oh, that is touching. It's a moment of incredible personal growth that is wrapped in some pretty brilliant, uh, like political awareness from young Marianne. Uh, it's, it's great. Wow. So what have you been up to? What have you been reading, listening to, thinking about, watching? Well, most of my life for the past several weeks has been the incredible highbrow show Suits. I mean, it literally stars royalty. I don't know how much higher brow you can get. I know. The former duchess, the, the, before she was a duchess and before she became no longer a duchess. The now absconded duchess. (laughs) The duchess in absentia. Yeah. There's got to be some great official term for that, right? There, yeah, there definitely needs to be a proper term, although I guess maybe it's never happened in in England's grand history. Um, it's a wonderful show. I mean, it's terrible in cer- certain ways. The characters are wonderful, and the it's I guess it's a middle brow show, which which is in fact my sweet spot. Um, the amusing part about it to me is that it's corporate law, but they're all like, you know, quote unquote, good people. And they're like slowly learning that they'll never really be able to do anything good as long as they're in the show doing corporate law. So that's amusing to me. I've been watching this show so much. It's, taken it's taken a lot of personal restraint and i didn't even succeed of not bringing up suits in relation to anything that i'm thinking about i brought it up in therapy okay i used it as an (laughs) analogy in therapy all right i'm making my confession to the world connor you now understand my continual life experience with the works of bruce springsteen i do but um okay here's here's another thing i've been reading is uh which which I highly recommend. Natasha Trethewey's poetry collection, Thrall, which she came out after her book, Native Guard, which we talked about her episode, her, her poem, Letter. Um, and that's her, from her book, Native Guard, which won the Pulitzer Prize. But Thrall is a lot of, it's a really interesting, there's a lot of ekphrastic pieces about different paintings um, that depict sort of like, I guess like the construction of race. There's these series of paintings where the the Spanish, when they like uh, colonized the Americas, they developed a really crazy intense like racial typology of like, um, and so there's a lot of paintings from the time like showing that and i don't know there's just and and but and so and natasha trethaway's um mother was black and father was white and so she kind of these poems are like this interrogation of like the construction of race and racism and like sort by like centering 
the problem that like mixed race poses sort of like to the entire concept <laughs> basically trethaway just has a, an amazing eye and like you can really see, like her her work just in terms of the painting alone is like wow that's like a really great way of talking about the painting but then she like really does these beautiful sort of metaphorical work um, out of it. And I don't know, it's, it's very, I'm loving it, thrall. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Rossiter Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Close Talking. See you next time. Mm-hmm.